that I first saw you when you were 15, so I've known you for more than half your life. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> not at this not point, that we yeah. were close, but but I remember the first time I saw you was at Blues on Bel Air. Okay. You were doing a CD launch party with, right, with J.W. Jones. Jones. Yeah. Right. And Rita Shirelli was there and Otis Taylor, too. Yeah. Blues on Bel Air. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. It was the Northern Blues launch. Right. Yeah, right. I remember, yeah. And you were that young kid. <laughs> so I'm sitting here talking with Steve Mariner, who's been kind enough to sit and come over and talk to me about his life in music. We talked about this before, but how did you first get into music? I've always been a fan of music. You know, um, the first memory I have of being drawn to music in a serious way was after watching the movie Back to the Future when I was a kid. And the scene where... Michael J. Fox's character grabs a guitar and plays Johnny Be Good at a, at right. a high school dance. You know, that to me was like, wow, I, I really want to know what that's all about. So I got into Chuck Berry at a very, I don't know, remember what age this would be, but I know that I had my parents dub me a cassette of Johnny Be Good, every song, both sides of the tape. It was just Johnny Be Good <laughs> to eternity. And I'd run around the house just, yeah. It got into me. And then I, you know, and then I, my, they got me like a best of Chuck Berry. And, right. you know, I learned all the other Chuck, I mean, I learned about all the other Chuck Berry stuff. I didn't start playing music till I was 10. And the Blues Brothers movie happened to be on TV. And my dad and I were watching TV. And then he said, hey, you'd probably like this, you know. And so we watched the movie. And at the end, I was like, hey, I want to, I want to play a harmonica. And so they, it was not so far from Christmas. So for Christmas, they got me a harmonica and they got me some lessons with uh, a fellow named Larry the Bird Mootham, who taught at the Ottawa Folklore Center. And um, so for the next year or so, I went every week and took lessons. And at that age, you know, I had just turned 11. Um, so I had nothing but time, you know, all I had to do was go to school and play hockey. And in between, I was playing harmonica all the time. So I, I, it came to me pretty quickly. After about a year, Larry invited me to sit in with his band at Irene's in Ottawa. You know, I was 12. And my parents brought me down there on a, it was a Saturday night. And he got me up for like three songs. And uh, I was pretty much hooked after that. So that was the first time you played in front of people? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that might be not true. I believe the, the Folklore Center had like a uh, sort of a recital for some of their students to perform for family and friends you know but yeah essentially that was my first time performing in what now is pretty much my home <laughs> you know right. like playing in bars or clubs or whatever so yeah it's been a, it's been a long road since then <laughs> <laughs> but you got there very quickly I mean you know the fact that I saw you when you were 15 and it was very quickly that you had established a name and you know, with your playing and at the age of 15 or 16 or whatever, I mean, people were talking about how you, how well you played the harmonica and everything. So you must have just woodshedded like crazy. I did. I mean, the, the, the truth is I played all the time, you know, I, and I just, at that age, your mind is so hungry for input, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you have the time to do it right now. So little responsibility as a young teenager, you know, just going to school and, and, you know, I wasn't really a, bad kid you know like I didn't misbehave till much later <laughs> so I had a lot of time and my folks were really supportive and my brother was really supportive he was always into music he had a guitar at the house and you know 
so he would introduce me to, he was more of a rock and roller. Like he, he used to love the Almond Brothers and he would try to get me to get into the Almond Brothers. And I wasn't ready yet. I was still in like Chicago land, you know, right. listening, learning to about Chicago blues and stuff and Delta. Um, but the fact of the matter is I just played and played and played and played and I got to know the instrument pretty quickly because I spent so much time with it. And um, I learned pretty early that I have pretty sensitive ears. I can hear things, you know. Um, I don't know that I have perfect pitch, but I have pretty good pitch. So it, it, it's nothing you can really practice. It's just a gift that I'm grateful for, you know, that, that I can listen to something and, and hear what's going on and, um, make sense of it. So, you know, just a lot of, lot of woodshedding, like you say, I just spent as much time as I could playing, listening, learning. And, um, so, so if you're 15 and already being in a band and, and starting to do gigs and tour, can I? It, it would be easy to assume that what you wanted to do was become a musician. But am I correct to say that? Like, was your dream to be a musician? Was there something? Was were there any other pursuits that you wanted to follow? Um, yeah, it's always pretty much been music. You know, um, <laughs> I went to university for two years mostly to appease my parents. You know, um, but you know, I liked university. And I would have finished my degree and everything, but I had a really good opportunity to go on tour with Harry Manx mm -hmm. that I judged that might not come around again. So I decided to take it, you know. Um, but, you know, uh, no, it's mostly been music. You know, right. my passion since being a young teen has always been music and um, and whatever came with it, you know. So the kid that I saw at age 15 that was in a band playing the blues... And I guess just getting to understand the music business or the business of the blues. What was the image that you had of of what the music industry is to what it actually is? And I know it's changed drastically in the last yeah. ten years, but um, I think having been on the road for a lot of the time since then, and seeing what the lives are like of those artists who I idolized, you know, um, those who are really influential, but not commercially super successful, like the Duke of Robillards of the world, you know, mm -hmm. for example, like Duke's a fantastic guitar player and has influenced a generation of players. For sure. But it's not like he's a superstar. And right. with that said, with all due respect, it's just mm -hmm. the reality of the business. And a lot of the people who I would see come to the rainbow who at one time I, I was really, I, and I continue to be impressed by, but you just see the realities of what their lives are like after you've lived like right. them and played a lot of the same venues and been part of that lifestyle. And you, uh, it takes some of the mystery and awe away from it, right. which isn't altogether a bad thing. Um, but you realize, I mean, I think when I was younger, I thought I'll practice and I'll play and I'll do all this thing and then I'll hit this plateau and I'll just be smooth sailing from there. Mm -hmm. And that's not the reality. Um, right. That's not how it is. I don't Although think at really at any level of the business. But I could, I could, one could argue that 
you reach a point where you establish a name and you have a body of work behind you and you've worked with a number of people that more opportunities are given to you. And I presume you're kind of at that level where you're playing with a lot of different people and I'm sure it's not because you're standing outside the gig saying, can you play? Can I play with you? <laughs> I'm sure people are calling you up saying, hey, I'm going on tour and need somebody who can do this for me. Right. Well, um, I'll respond by saying sometimes people tell me that I'm very lucky for these opportunities, mm-hmm. to which I respond, luck has nothing to do with it, which is also not altogether true. <laughs> A lot of times... It's right place, right time. Mm -hmm. The difference is being prepared for opportunity. You know, it's true. I've I've got a lot of great calls and I've gotten to go on a lot of great tours. But it's because when someone calls, I'm ready to do the job or I'm ready to put in the work or I've spent time developing the skills that prepare me for these opportunities. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, to digress a bit, um, another thing that... I've learned since being that young kid is how to play several different instruments and realizing that having a wider set of a wider skill set will lead to more job security and and more opportunities, you know. I mean a lot of the touring I've done has not really been because I'm a harmonica player. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because I can play the bass, the guitar, keys, whatever and be a utility guy. Does that come natural to you? I mean, obviously, you can't just pick up an instrument and figure it out within 10 minutes, but you're obviously musically very versatile. How, how is it that a harmonica player, which you were initially, right. becomes a good guitar player, a good bass player, can play the keyboards? Just time and practice. I mean, if you have the desire and the sort of the concept of what you want to hear already in your head. The rest is just making your muscles do the work and practicing and repetition, you know. Um, that's pretty much, I mean, that's really the only answer is just time and and, and dedication, mm-hmm. like anything. You know, um, some instruments come more naturally to me. Others are difficult. You know, I mean, I've tried five times to learn how to play the fiddle but i can't for this can't for the life of me make it sound like anything other than a sick cat so i'll try again one day but right. you know it's mostly time if i have enough time i think i'll be able to figure it out okay so you talked about harry manx mm-hmm. um i presume that was a huge opportunity in fact i think we talked about this many many years ago and and what an it, what a great opportunity it was not only as a musician, but also understanding the business side of things and the business of being on the road. Tell me what, what that experience with Harry Max was like. There were some really great years. You know, um, I met Harry at the North American Folk Alliance in Vancouver in 2001. It was around that time that Northern Blues music was launching. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was around that time when I was 15, you know, and Harry had just moved back from living abroad and he was unknown and he basically set up in the middle of the hotel lobby and just started playing till someone noticed him. And one of those people was Fred Litwin, who, as you know, founded Northern Blues Music. Anyhow, so we met then and we jammed and he liked my playing. I liked his music. We stayed in touch via email. And when he would come around Ottawa following that, 
you know, he played a lot at the Black Sheep Inn in Wakefield, so I would go, and my brother liked his music, my dad liked his music, so the three of us would usually go, and I'd sit in, and we had a, we'd have a great time. Um, in 2004, I was just finishing my first year of university, and my father surprised me with a trip to Chicago for the Blues Festival, because in high school, it had always school had always finished later than the festival ran, like in late right, June. Right. But now school is done at the beginning of May. So, anyhow, as like a week before we left, we were looking at the lineup to kind of get excited and see who we were going to see. And um, I noticed Harry's name was on the list, so I sent him an email and said, "Hey, I'm going to see you in Chicago. We're going to be there." And he said, "Well, make sure you bring your harps." So obviously, I was very excited. We played together and got a great response. And, you know, I remember after we were in the middle of standing up for our, as the crowd stood up for the encore, you know, and gave him a standing ovation. He leaned in and said, why don't, why don't we try this at home sometime? Hmm. You know, so more and more over the next sort of year, he started inviting me out for more shows. And then uh, we were doing like a month long tour in the summer of 2005 and I was about one week away from going back to my third year of university. And he basically just asked me to, if I wanted to drop out and come on the road with him. You know, he had a tour lineup in the States for the rest of the fall and then a big tour in Australia. And I just was super excited. So, yeah, I, I left the studies and put some harmonica parts in his record. He was in the middle of making and then I hit the road with him and um for a lot of the time, it was just he and I for about a year. It was just him and I traveling around. And I was young. I was uh, 20 for the first part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, for the first tour we did in the States, I was too young to get in the bar. I mean, we weren't playing bars so much there. He does more at concert venues. Right. But I remember being in California one night in some town, and the promoter and his wife took Harry out and asked me to come, and they wouldn't let me in the bar because they <laughs> ID'd me. Anyhow, but... Um, I could go on and on about stories, but simply, Harry is one of the most generous people I've met, mm -hmm. uh, of himself and of material things. You know, uh, he's just been a great friend, a great mentor. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen anybody as dedicated to succeeding as Harry Manx. Yeah. He's figured out. Uh, a style that is true to himself and represents a lot of his life ex life's experiences, but has managed to present it to audiences in a way that makes them feel so many things. Mm -hmm. But he, like, without fail, every concert we gave, emotional responses from the audience. People get really emotionally invested in his music. And that's exciting to be part of, you know. Um, and I love the music, too, so it was really fun. I'm and sure you learned a lot of things, but what would be the one great thing you took away from that whole experience? How to chill. You know, how, how to just let go of things. I, you know, I was, I was and continue to be a high-energy person, you know. <laughs> and, but I would always be preoccupied looking forward, looking down the road. What about this? What about that? You know, looking, contemplating, thinking all the time and or stressing over things that were beyond my control, you know, 
as lots of young people do. But it was a day where we played in Boston and we're driving to New York City for the next gig and there had been an ice storm and then temperature rose significantly the next day. So as we were driving down the highway, ice was flying off cars left and right and Harry was in a car by himself and Glenn McIntosh, the sound technician, and myself were traveling in the van with all the gear. Well, first, we get a call from Harry that Ice had flown off a car and smashed up his windshield, and we had to spin around and go get him. So off we go, pick up Harry, leaves his car at a shop. We get back on the highway. Half an hour later, we're driving behind a transport truck, and a big sheet of ice flew off the roof and is up in the air. And... uh it was it was a bit bit scary for I a second. Imagine. Anyway, thankfully it landed flat on the windshield and not sideways because I might not have a head. Right. But uh, it smashed up the windshield and we had to pull off into a rest stop. And uh, I was just freaking out. Not so much about what might have happened, but oh well, we're gonna be late for our gig and we're gonna we're gonna miss sound check and all. What are we gonna do? You know, freaking out. And Harry put one hand on my shoulder and says. We're not going to play in New York tonight, and that's okay. Hmm. And I just, just uh, that night we went out for. We ended up staying in New Haven, Connecticut, and went to a Italian restaurant and had a big, awesome meal. And we laughed a lot. We laughed at just what a crazy situation that was, and we just laughed and we had a good time. And nothing, you know. I I don't know what I was so worried about. But from then on, I've just taken most things in stride. I, I try not to get too worked up or emotional about things because things will always go wrong on the road. But <laughs> there is always a solution. Right. And if you just keep calm and cool about it, you know, being comfortable with the alternative, you're always cool, you know. So I'd say the big takeaway... Uh, from Harry is he's taught me to learn to let go of things, which is a great lesson. Yeah. So with Harry around that time or two few years later in 2007, I think you did a solo album under Harry's label. Yeah. Tell me about the expectations of that solo album and what you got out of that experience. It was a wonderful experience because I got to um, collaborate with Garrett Mason Mm -hmm. who played guitar on half the record and Sue Foley, who played guitar on the other half of the record, because they're two of my favorite players. And um, it was exciting to, you know, I'd, I'd made records before, like I was on two J.W. Jones records, and I'd recorded on some of Harry's stuff, and I'd done a, a sort of smattering of uh, session work playing harmonica at that point. But this was exciting for me because this was my first kick at, like, producing an album where I wrote the songs and I was in control of everything. Mm -hmm. So it was exciting. And I think it was the record that I was meant to make at that time. But um, uh, looking back, the experience was fantastic, really. I mean, we had a lot of fun. I got to play with a lot of good friends. I don't think it's possible for me to look back and not be critical of it because I was 21 or 22 And, you know, I've learned so much in the last 10 years, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I really feel like I've 
come into my own as as a singer mostly. I mean, to be honest, I think I've been playing the same kind of harmonica about the same. You know, I've I learned things here and there, but right, I've been playing at the same level of harp for a little while. But uh, it's tough to listen to me sing back back <laughs> then because I I really feel like I've uh, progressed a lot as a singer. But um, you know, I don't know what I what I expected. You know, I just expected that I would sort of jump into the into the fray and be another artist trying to trying to make it. You know, um, we got a lot of positive feedback. You know, I, there's I still one review haunts me that kind of. <laughs> Have you, you met know, the person yet? Oh no, I haven't <laughs> met him, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. I mean, it it was just critical of my songwriting which is fair because i was 22 you know what mm-hmm. have you really got to say you know if you're making a blues record you know i don't know right i i'm you know it's it's fair enough my songwriting wasn't what i would call mature at that time but it was i was writing originals you know i think we did uh the one cover on the record was a harry Manx song you know so in that respect i'm gl- i'm proud and glad that i wrote my own tunes you know, um, but it was a good, um, uh, it was a really good precursor to monkey junk. You know, it got me the experience of having made a record and then kind of focusing a little bit, you know, I, there's a few different styles on that record, which is cool. I've always been a fan of having a varied selection of songs, mm-hmm. but yeah, it, Really, it was to me that record was just kind of like a warm up for getting ready for Monkey Junk. So, was there any thoughts of pursuing the solo career? I know you still play on your own as a solo artist, but like you didn't release another solo album. Was there a thought of that, or not really? Until no, not really. Um, about a year after Going Up came out was when I was I started doing okay so going up came out in March 2007 that spring I went on a tour of western Canada on my own I mean with a band but like under my own name and right. all that that summer I did a few some festival stuff I went to France with Harry that fall and then I started doing a solo gig at Irene's every Sunday in like September 2007. And then by March, I was getting bored of playing solo. But it had served a purpose. It got me comfortable playing solo. Mm-hmm. To where like... Because at the first the first couple gigs, I was terrible. And, and not I'm even... I'm sure it's an adjustment, right? An adjustment, an but I also was... You know, it the way I've always learned things is by jumping in and figuring it out, you know. Um, so anyway... So, like I say, about a year after my solo record came out, you know, nothing really happened. I did this tour. I did a couple little festivals, but it didn't light any huge fires, you know. And so then Tony and I were jamming, and we had the idea of creating Monkey Chunk. We called Matt and told him to be at Irene's the following Sunday. We told him that we were going to make a band called Monkey Junk, and he was just going to be the drummer. We didn't ask <laughs> And, and he hadn't even played with you at this point. Well, Matt I mean, and I have been friends for years, and right. we played in JW's band But as together. a three-piece. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, and Matt, previous to that, Matt had been playing for drums for Tony for right, that's true. Yeah. five, six years, something like that. 
So um, it was a good fit. And it was not, you know, the endeavor was not this grand scheme to take over the world. It was just like, let's get together and have some fun. This but it fun. did very well. It Do did. You, can you explain? I mean, can you, in your mind, can you figure out why it, you did so well? And by, by so well, I mean not only in Canada, which you've won numerous music, uh, Maple Blues Awards, but, you know, you obviously made an impact in Memphis with the um, IBCs and winning the um, Blues Music Awards for the Best New Artist, which is a huge deal, especially from a Canadian perspective. But yeah. what was it about Monkey Junk, you think, that was just, that got the recognition and just seemed to lift you into another level? I think it's a few different things. Um, trying to run my own career myself was being, was getting a bit overwhelming, you know, having everything be under my own name. Uh, I feel like I would be less ready to take risks because it falls squarely on you and it's only your name on the project. Right. When you are united with two other people who you care about and everything falls on all of your shoulders, the weight is easy, easier to carry. You know, that's not hard to understand. But um, I think it was just a timing thing as well. I was, you know, 22 or 23 and really hungry. You know, I really wanted to do something. And having Tony there, who I've always known and respected, and just having him there, at, not only for his fantastic guitar playing, but just as sort of a, a mentor role, mm -hmm. you know, and having him there and having the support. Uh, yeah, it was really, really comforting, you know, and... I felt like, okay, I could, I'd want to make things happen, not just for me, but for the other guys too, right. you know? So, and, and yeah, I, I think too, like Tony, Tony had a kid that I, at the time that Monkey Junk got started, he was still pretty young, you know? So Tony had been spending a few years sort of closer to home being with his son and Playing, playing gigs and going out and touring, right. but not as heavy as when he had been a bit younger, you know? So I think it was, he was ready for something to come along and be part of something that was, was exciting, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but and musically, what do you think was unique about it? Because, I mean, it's easy for three guys to get together and say, let's do something really great. Right. But more often than not, it, it's no different than anything else that then and and I just get the feeling that Monkey Junk took all of your musical careers to a different level. It did. Um, I think what makes Monkey Junk a unique entity is, well, firstly the format. You know, not having a bass player and making use of a baritone guitar, mm -hmm. which is a voice that surprisingly is not really made it itself right. very known in the blues community which is odd to me because it's such a nasty sounding cool sound you know and so anyway uh, i think it was just to begin with here's this trio doing something different right, right? you know and but also just the passion and and 
and, and desire, you know, like wanting to make something happen. Like I say, it didn't start that way. It started out as just all of us finding some common ground on Sunday nights and jamming and being loose and fun about it. So I think that in itself it was an attractive quality. The, the fact that we were just a couple guys playing some tunes, having fun, and taking a lot of musical liberties, you know, like just jamming, making stuff up. And so, you know, to the best of my knowledge, like, I mean, there's also something that I, I, I'm just not aware of, right? You know, mm -hmm. as an artist, when you're so close to what you're doing, you don't really get how it's perceived by other people. So yeah. I don't really know, you know, because like you said, it took on a thing and became and eclipsed each of our solo careers, right? So, and this is the vehicle that allows you to play at the Blues Bender in Las Vegas, right. and it takes you to Europe and yeah. takes you across Canada on a yearly basis, if not twice a year, or whatever, right? Yeah. So, and and you know the funny thing is, if you know, like if Monkey Junk plays the Rainbow, it's sold out, and there's a lineup out to the street. If I play the Rainbow on my own. There's people there, but it's, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so what, not, how does that, how does that make you feel? I always, always wondered about that. <laughs> it's a little frustrating, you know I mean? But it, it's, it's what it is, you know? Yeah. It's fair enough because back to your question about making another solo record after the first one, the momentum of Monkey Junk completely commandeered everything right it required the attention and i i'm glad that i spent that energy on that project because we've done great things you know mm -hmm. and and it became obvious to all of us at one point because tony has always had the tony d band right but he does a handful of gigs each year because we're usually busy with monkey junk you know but we all kind of saw it was obvious that this project right now is what requires all of our attention. And I think because all of us dedicated ourselves to it, it grew. And, you know, it's like any band, everyone's got different opinions. Not not everything has been super smooth. But, oh, I'm sure. But we're all, I think, fundamentally on the same page. I have to ask. Yeah. I mean, you've had steady work and you've had decent level of success ever since I first met you. Has there ever been a difficult time? Did you ever go through a time when music was hard or when this, you questioned the business or like, was there ever a point where you, yeah. okay, I, yesterday, I, <laughs> no, I understand no. you would question the business, but was there ever a time when it was just hard, when, when there was no success or there was no gigs or whatever? Um, not really, because. I remain dedicated to making things happen. Right. But I, there was a time when music and I had a bit of a fight, you know, and when I was in, in university and um, I kind of realized that I had spent a lot of my teenage years where my friends, my own age were messing around and, you know, like just being kids. Right. I was playing gigs with 50 year olds, you know, which is great because I got to make money mm -hmm. and an experience but at some point, I felt as though I had sacrificed too much really? and, and that the juice wasn't worth the squeeze anymore. What so, did you go to school for? Kinesiology. Oh, okay. I mean, I've always been, well, until recently, pretty <laughs> athletic. 
<laughs> you still play hockey. I do, not as much as I'd like, but okay. you know. But when I was younger, right. hockey and and being active was a, a big deal for me, and so you know the science of the body was interesting to me. So that's why. That's but why did that. you ever question? I mean, why do you think you you felt that? Um, I don't know what that would be considered, but I mean, it wasn't like the world the business was tough on you. Therefore, you questioned it. It seemed like it was something else. Well, if okay, if we're being really honest, I mean, I haven't achieved my goals yet. So in that respect, you can let that yeah, affect yeah. you a couple different ways. For me, it inspires me to work harder. Sometimes it gets the better of you and you get down on it. You know, like, hmm. you know, I'm not getting the respect I deserve or, you know... Uh, I wish this were easier or, you know, I, I wish people, I wish everybody liked what I did or, you know, you take all these things and turn inward, but you know, I think that's natural, but, um, you know, there was a little episode when I was in university where I was like finding that I wasn't being very present in that experience. You know, I wasn't really, I was at university, but I was just kind of breezing through it and not paying a lot of attention where I thought, well, you know, this is pretty interesting uh, experience so I should be more present and you know I just got stiffed on a gig you know like I didn't get paid what we agreed on like by a guy and you know just things like that and I was playing with people who were being non-committal and it was just like the just the regular sort of BS of yeah but I mean I I see the, through talking to musicians and and not just blues but in all fields it's a tough tough business it's a tough thing to make a living at and no matter what field you you know what sure. genre you're in sure and it can beat you up and it could spit you out and it's not a very friendly business and and even if you have great times they're always often times when people go through you know pretty horrible dry spells or whatever it just doesn't seem like you've gone through that um and i guess that speaks to your the work um, ethic and 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 then I also the fact that you also play as a sideman with tons of people. Yeah. Well, my response to that, Marco, is that there's likely a reason that some people work dries up. Right. Right. You know, I don't mean to sound harsh, but because things happen, right? People's lives change. People get married or in in love, and that changes your goals, right. and then you become I know for me, which is very twisted, but when I'm happy, like really happy and content, I get complacent because it's the negative that fuels my fire for creativity. Mm -hmm. You know, when when I'm sad or I'm lonely or, or, you know, that's when I'm most creative. When I'm happy, I'm usually just kicking back and enjoying being happy, you know? (laughs) Right. So... Which can ultimately have an effect on your career. If you don't make a record for a couple of years, the phone's going to stop ringing. If you don't keep trying to book gigs to show yourself to people, like people are going to forget. So, yeah, it's hard. It's a hustle. And sometimes, you know, even though things are going well currently, sometimes, you know, you get down. Like today, when it's the 21st of October, is my fourth Friday off since April 1st. Since I moved to Toronto, right. it's the fourth day that I've been in fourth Friday that I've been in Toronto. Like I get to have a normal Friday night with my normal friends 
maybe go out for dinner and have some drinks. You know what I mean? <laughs> but if it's only the fourth one of this year, what's normal? <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. That's but amazing, though. It is. And it, so on the one hand, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful. On the other hand, I'm a bit tired out. But at the beginning of this year, I decided that I was going to make myself as busy as possible. And it seems as though I've succeeded because I, of the six months I've lived in Toronto now, I've been here for two of them. Yeah. So the last time I spoke to you was in January at the... Maple Blues Awards, and you were just about to go on the road for like an insane schedule over the next yep. five weeks or something. Then you were going to come home, then move to Toronto, and then I presume that schedule kept going crazy. Tell oh, yeah. me just a little bit at a very high level who you've played with this year, who you've toured with. Uh, started out with Matt Anderson, then um, Monkey Junk did a European tour right after I moved to Toronto. Then we made a record, then we went to the United States for a couple festivals. Then I came back and did a tour with Samantha Martin, Delta Sugar of the Maritimes. Then we came back from that and did more monkey junk gigs where we backed up. We did a project at the Ottawa Blues Festival this year called Monkey Junk All-Star Blues Review where we had a bunch of guests like Colin Linden, mm-hmm. Jack DeKaiser, Paul James, Paul Reddick, uh, Sue Foley, others that I'm forgetting right now, but we had a lot of great Canadian artists join us, Kenny Blues Boss Wayne too. And so we backed them up for four nights at the Ottawa Blues Fest. And then after that, uh, <laughs> I did some festivals with Colin James because I recorded on his new record that just came out. Right. Um, then we just did a tour of Alberta with Monkey Junk and... We're, from here on out this year, it's all, I'm pretty sure, Paul Reddick and Monkey Junk gigs. Like, Is it hard to, silly question, but is it hard to coordinate what opportunities there are? When, when somebody calls you and says, hey, can you go on the road with me for three weeks or six weeks or whatever? Yeah. And then you have, at the very last week, starting engagement with Monkey Junk or whatever. How does that, like, how do you coordinate all this? It is tricky because it means saying no to things that, you wish you didn't have to. Like, for example, uh, Colin James is doing a a tour with Beth Hart in the UK in November, and I can't go because we have like seven monkey junk shows. So I can't can't cancel on Matt and Tony. I'd I'd be robbing them, you know? But, so that's, I mean, and it's frustrating. While I don't resent the guys in my band, I wish I could do that gig and have those experiences. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, I'm going, I'm getting to go on tour with him in February and March next year. So that'll be fun, you know, all the big venues like Massey Hall, NAC. And how like do you how do you view? I mean, you have your own band that's very successful. You also do a bunch of stuff with people like Matt Anderson, Colin James, and Paul Reddick, and whoever. How do you view your role as a sideman, and and what does that give you versus being uh, a member of a group like Monkey Junk? I think every sideman gig is a great learning experience. You know, I've, I've always, I, I don't see the funny thing is for me, the gigs that I've gotten to do as a sideman are always gigs that are with people that I really have a lot of respect for, you know, like uh, before Mikey Junk, I, you know, while well, it was Harry Manx first, that was right. my b- first big sideman gig, then Sue Foley, then Monkey Junk happened, but then, you know, 
an assignment from Matt Anderson, for Colin James, Paul Reddick. You know, so these are all people, like, I'm not just a side guy for hire. No. You know, though, if a friend of mine wanted me to, you know, I've done that. You know, I played bass for Sugar Brown when I first moved here, you know, just because. <laughs> but I'm in a position where I don't need the sideman gigs. So I can say no if I don't want to do it, you know, right. which is a really comfy position because I love being a sideman for people who I love. Tell me about the approach. I mean, how what happens when Matt Anderson or Colin James says, can you play harp or whatever for me? Right. What's your approach to being in that band? Are you just, it is basically all about supporting the primary artist and there's right. no ego involved. In- oh, yeah, no. No, I mean, you can't. You can't be a side man and have an ego. It doesn't work. It doesn't, I mean, if you, if you're hired to do a job, you have to do that job. But... I like to try and cultivate a relationship with the people I play with that I feel comfortable. If I have input that I think would be valuable, I feel comfortable mm-hmm. presenting it. If it if it gets rejected, that's fine. It's, but I presume the most people who hire you hire you because they think of you very highly. Like they they know that you bring would, something to the table. I would like to assume the same, <laughs> but. Huh. I treat every sideman job as a supporting role because that's what it is. You know, just as I expect when I hire people to support me, that's the deal. When you're a side person, you are there to support the artist and cast them in the best light possible. And I take that very seriously, you know, so that means learning people's tunes when they, when they send them to me and, and trying my best to emulate the vibe of the recording of the song, you know, and do and understand the song as best as possible. Um, is there ever a downside to being a sideman? Um, that might affect your non-sideman. Sure. Own. Well, you know, sometimes like when, well, when you disagree with something, you know, or when, you know, it's something as simple as like, let's play this song. Oh, that's a bad call. Let's not do that one right now. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, some people, don't have much concept of how to sort of sequence their shows you know they'll do like three ballads in a row right it's like no 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 you got it but not not the caliber of people you're playing for them (laughs) (laughs) no i'll do respect to everyone no i just let's name them no 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 so but that's not about them that's about me right i i have admittedly uh, a way i like to do things Mm -hmm. so being a sideman is also a good exercise in letting go and right. being like, you know what? I'm just here. I'm going to play and that's it. Mm-hmm. It's not my problem. Anything else beyond doing my job is not my problem, which is nice. Because which must be very nice. I mean, it, it compared is nice. to being on the road with Monkey Junk or your solo career, I presume that the weight on your shoulder is much greater and Sure, like everything's our with. problem. When, yeah. it's, when Monkey Junk's out on the road, you know... Uh, Everything falls on us, you know, and, and yeah, we share it, but right. still it's our, it's our responsibility to book the flights and, and we're self-managed and for the most part self-booked, you know, so. Is that it, by choice or is that just the realities of the business? The management is not necessarily by choice, but it's difficult to find uh, a manager who believes mm-hmm. that they can make you successful and in turn themselves successful. 
It seems to be that way. Um, an agent. We work with several agents. Okay, just just to clarify, the yeah. agents are the ones getting your gigs. Correct. Booking agents, ideally, their only responsibility is to arrange for gigs and negotiate fees. Okay, so is it like, okay, we have next August available. Can you get us gigs in Europe or in the States or whatever? That's Ideally. They go out and... Okay, so Ideally. what would a manager give you? Like, if you had a manager, what would be the advantage of getting a manager for a band like this? Um for, for a lot do? of for a lot of a big advantage would be just administrative duties that we wouldn't have to do booking flights logistics planning right. all these things where we just wouldn't have to do it right. someone else would be on top of it and they would be in charge of making it make sense instead of you know and they would liaise with the publicist the agent so it would just be like Hey, you have an interview next week at 2 p.m. There you go. And you don't have to have arranged it or keep track of the email. Here's the phone number. Call this person at 2. Or they're calling you at 2. Or, you know, a manager would actively seek out opportunities to place your music in film and TV, commercials, etc. You know, ideally they would have connections to make that happen. A manager's job is to keep everything floating as well as find new revenue streams all the time. Right. And, I mean, I, and I, have someone dedicated to doing that all the time, you know, every day. Here's an update. Here's what we're working on. Right. But one has to be of a certain level to make it worthwhile for the manager who takes a percentage cut. Right. Um, and I mean, I hear about this all the time from various musicians about if I only had a manager, but I often wonder, well, you know, what, what does that really mean? And Dollars and cents, like everything else. If, if you were able to, if your product, in this case, Monkey Junk, were able to generate enough money, mm-hmm. they'll want to, a piece of that. You know, if they, or if they see potential into growing more money, that's what they want to be part of. Right. You know, um, the reality is a lot of, booking agencies and management firms don't see the value in blues. Right. They, they see a low ceiling and they're not altogether wrong. You know, like of the festivals that exist of all genres, blues festivals are smallish. There's a lot of smallish blues festivals that the, this is said with all due respect. <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm just, it's just an observation. Right. A lot of blues festivals are, a thousand-ish people or less right. and in a park in a little town. And they're great. And for for bands like ours and, and other bands like we that we know, that is kind of the lifeblood, really. Like right. all summer long, playing these festivals is how we make a lot of our income for the year. So I'm grateful they exist. But we're not playing Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, Coachella. That's not what we do. But that's where people, that's where pop music happens, you know? And I mean, I just, I just don't think a lot of management firms or agencies, at least the feedback that we've gotten, Mm -hmm. they don't believe they could grow us to that level. And so no thanks. But is it correct to assume that monkey junk and maybe even your own stuff isn't really 
I know it's rooted in the blues, and I know it is blues, mm-hmm. but, I mean, there's a part of you that says you want to go beyond the blues. And, yeah. And it's not like you want to do slow blues and swings and shuffles all the time. Right. Right? So how does, how does is there, is the goal to make it something other than try to do blues festivals? I mean, I, I understand the blues festivals because... You know, I mean, one can be critical about the size, but the reality is there's probably more of an in- infrastructure in blues festivals than anything else. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there are a lot of them. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of them. And, and like, like if you were I doing said, jazz, it would be tougher. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's just that what I just said was that not necessarily how I feel, but the feedback I've gotten mm-hmm. from industry people is that they don't feel that it's a worthy venture for them to invest their time in a blues band. Right. That's that's the main message that I've gotten back from after courting agencies and management. You know, that's Okay, so when you play with somebody like Matt Anderson, who really isn't blues, who can fall into that category but is kind of outside of that. For or sure. Colin James, I would presume, is mainly blues, but he also kind of falls outside of that category. Mm-hmm. What do you learn from that? I mean, do you think, okay, how do I get it, my band to get into that category or whatever? Well, I don't necessarily think... I mean, I can't really compare Matt Anderson and Monkey Junk, mm-hmm. you know, because Matt mostly plays acoustic guitar and sings songs that he wrote. And the, the point of a Matt Anderson show is about the words and the singing, mm-hmm. you know? While that is somewhat a point of our of our show with monkey junk. There's a lot about the instrumentation too, right? It's a lot about the fact that Tony's a wicked lead guitar player. And then I play harmonica the way I do. And so it's, it's a, a different, it's a different entity, you know? Uh, of course there's things I can learn. Um, Matt Anderson, for example, is a fantastic with a crowd. He's charming and, and funny and genuine. He's a really <laughs> heartfelt guy who's genuinely grateful to have the career that he does. Yeah. Uh, Colin James, super slick. He's been in front of people, a lot of people, mm-hmm. for a long time. And his body of work, like this record that he just put out, is his 18th album. Uh-huh. You know, in 27 years or something like that. You know, so... Um, and Colin's body of work is so vast. Like mm-hmm. he's done everything from the big band jump thing to, you know, straight rock, you know, radio rock to blues and to Acoustic. all kinds of stuff, yeah. you know? So, um, I've learned things from these guys. I'm not sure if I know exactly what yet, but I'm always paying a lot of attention. I think to your question about monkey junk and whether, you know, we're blues or not ultimately is not decided by us because our last record we put out moon turn red is not what I would consider a blues record, but people still call us a blues band. Right. So no matter, it seems that no matter what we do, we're labeled as a blues band, which I don't say begrudgingly. No, it's, it's, you know, it's whole. yeah, we're, yeah. we're fortunate and grateful to be part of that community. Um, Were you concerned when you released it that it was not necessarily your basic blues, that it would be taken? I, I was not concerned. Uh, it was a discussion we had, you know. It was a consideration while, you know, there was a bit of like, well, 
we'll see what happens. You know, like see what people because you never know when no. you put out a record, you have no idea what kind of impact it's going to have. Um, but making each Monkey Junk record hasn't felt very different from the last. It's just felt like a new batch of tunes. And oh, well, like we listened to a little more of the meters lately, so there's a few more funky kind of songs, you know, for example. Or, right. you know, we listened to a little more of, I don't know what. You know, this last record, we have a new record coming out November 4th, Time to Roll. And I would say it's decidedly more bluesy than the previous. Mm -hmm. That might have been on purpose because... Like I said, we felt like no matter what we do, we get labeled a blues band, so we may as well put out a blues record, right. you know. And at a certain point, you know, we've been together eight and a half years, and we've tried to do this, and we've tried to do that, and it's it's always sort of been a experiment, which I think is a good way for a band to be, to constantly be in search of <laughs> what feels right. right. And I don't think we've ever created anything that has felt uh unlike us you know like we were chasing something right. we everything i yeah I, I i stand by that i think everything we've recorded or written has felt like it's belongs there you said before you talked about um <clears throat> you haven't reached your goals yet tell me what your goals are massive stardom <laughs> I, I'm joking, okay. but but not really. You know, I mean, I didn't start when I got serious about having a music career. It wasn't so that I could play tiny little spots for the rest of my life, right? You know, although I do have to think is. that you know, when I interview some lifelong musicians, and they've been able to do it for thirty, forty years, maybe not at a glamorous level, but the fact that they've been able to play and make a living playing music all their lives. That in itself, I think, is pretty amazing. Agreed. Yeah. You know, but tell it, me about this massive stardom that. Well, you're... you know what? I don't. I don't uh, wish for the fame so much, or like the you know the the dark side of the fame of having people know all about you and right. follow you around. You know what? I would just like for music that I create to influence people in a positive way and be a positive force in the world. That that's all, and. It's fun to play to a lot of people who get charged up, emotionally invested in your music. You know, it's fun. You know, we play these festivals. There's a couple festivals we've played where, with Monkey Junk, that is, that people just go crazy. You know, we played this festival in Alberta called the North Country Fair. And you start at like midnight and people just go rabid. And it's awesome. Yeah, it's I'm the sure. best feeling. It's why we all do it. You know, of course, there's the gigs where you play and everyone's sitting on their hands and they clap and they're polite. And that's nice. But I want to get crazy. I like when people lose their stuff. You know, like they get crazy, they dance, they scream, they let out whatever frustration's been inside them. That's what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. I like watching people freak out. So. You know, if I know that it can be done with this band, I've seen it, Right. you know, and it's just a matter of getting in front of more people, I think, and, and have, getting people access to your music. So 
I don't know what that statement means, you know, but really I just wish to be able to do what I want to do with a reasonable amount of comfort and, and, and get to collaborate. Uh, you know, the thing about having moved to Toronto is just, there's some really interesting things going on right now. I find like right now there's, um, you know, because I've been coming to play here for 15, 16 mm-hmm. years, you know. But I feel like in the last couple years, maybe it's just who I've met in that time and and the network of people expanding, but I feel like there's a, a lot of creativity going on right now. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just other players my age coming into their own and creating good things, but there's a real cohesive scene here, you know. I got, you know, I'm starting to play with bands from, from here, like just for fun. Like I played with uh, this band Dead Flowers, who is a group of great Toronto musicians who all have other projects coming together to play the Dakota on Wednesdays and play Rolling Stones tunes. And it's super fun. Not like playing Rolling Stones tunes is overly creative, but <laughs> each of these musicians has other projects. Right in which they are very creative. I love playing with Paul Reddick. He's super creative. Mm-hmm. Him and I all the time are writing and jamming and just, you know. So I don't know. I I don't know. I You know, Will I don't know. Will this result in few... other projects that you'll be involved in other than... Possibly. Fantasy? It's too early to tell, really. Right. But, you know, for the next little while, like I say, Monkey Junk's got a new record coming out and we're going to see that through and do some touring for that next year. Um, but, you know, I, you never know. Like I, like I said, I'm going to do that tour with Colin next year and possibly some other work as well and uh, Monkey Jungle Tour. Uh, and in between, I'm, I'm ready for, for anything, <laughs> as I always so am, you know. The move to Toronto has been a good move? Fantastic. Is it, it, does it, it feel like home to you? Because I know that you're always on the road, so I don't know what home feels like. For you I don't always know either but yeah it's feeling pretty home-like I mean I'm very fortunate to have found a great place and I live with two of my closest friends from Ottawa we all moved together mm-hmm. so that's been helpful you know in the transition and kind of that I'm not I haven't come here by myself I mean before I moved I'd spent most of 2015 hanging out here just growing the network and making new friends and getting to know the people in all the venues and, you know, just laying the groundwork. Right. So I didn't feel like it was a huge shock to move here. Um, but certainly having my roommates, Kelly and Curtis, who are also musicians pursuing their own careers, like we've come here and started branching out together, which is always easier. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, thank you so much for doing this. I always find it fascinating talking to you and, and your perspective of things. Thanks, Mako. It's a pleasure. We can keep going for another two hours, I'm sure. <laughs> well, perhaps we will do this again sometime. I hope so. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.